Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last eight years, I've done more than 370 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects products for more than 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today on Art of the Cut, Chad Galster, ACE, discusses cutting the series Yellowstone. Our discussion also covers the spinoff series 1883 and 1923. Chad cut the 2021 movie Those Who Wish Me Dead, also written and directed by 1883 creator Taylor Sheridan. He also edited the features A Score to Settle and Beautiful Boy and the TV series Mayor of Kingstown, The Proposal, The Bachelor, and The Bachelorette. One of the things we'll be discussing is his move from reality TV to scripted TV and film. Before I hop into our discussion with Chad, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for macOS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no-limits 14-day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head on over to borisfx.com and check out the new Boris Effects Suite which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to either borisfx.com slash artofthecut, all one word, or borisfx.com slash AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now, Chad Galster, ACE, on editing Yellowstone, 1883 and 1923. You've done a lot of projects with Taylor. How did that relationship begin? It began in the most random way that I could that I could think of. A lot of relationships. How do you meet people? How do you start working with them? Well, I was a reality editor for a very long time, and I was having a great career. I loved being a reality editor. You were on editor. The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. The Bachelor, The Bachelorette. I did The Hills before that. Look, you know, when I came out of film school in the early 2000s, reality TV was having its huge moment, right? So those were the jobs that were available. I actually started out cutting documentary television for National Geographic, History Channel, Discovery Channel. I took any job that came my way and I thought, I'm going to learn something here. I'll meet people. And I worked nonstop while I was still even a film student. I was starting to get work. So I just found my way into these shows and they became like kind of legacy shows, you'd say, like they just kept going on and on and on. So I was just having a, a, a nice old career and really enjoying myself. And I love the people that I worked with. And I was starting to be like a supervising producer, co-executive producer of Post and all that. So I was doing great. And then a friend of mine, a reality editor, who at the time I'd known for 
12 or 13 years. We worked together on the Hills and The Bachelor. Our careers just were kind of in lockstep, just kind of weirdly. He had known Taylor Sheridan just as a friend for 20 some odd years. They go back to when Taylor was a broke actor and my friend was a broke whatever he was doing before he became an editor. They were just friends. They had a relationship, a personal relationship and um, like lived together for a while. They were just a couple of guys in, in LA. Yellowstone one happened and they were cutting it. Taylor directed every episode of season one of Yellowstone and they needed some help. And so Taylor said, to my friend, he said, look, I'd like to meet the best reality editor that you know. And he was very specific about it being a reality editor because what he had seen is that my friend who was a reality editor was like the fastest editor he knew. He kind of like throw things up against the wall and then like try out a million things. He wasn't concerned about how a script, once you, once you shoot it, the script like goes away. And problem so- Problem solver probably. Problem solver. I mean, that's just the nature of that kind of work. And so he introduced me and I flew out to Park City, Utah and they were shooting season one still. I flew out to the sound stages there, and the Avids were attached to the soundstage complex in Park City at the time. And I cut a scene for Taylor, like this kind of complicated six or seven person dialogue scene, bunkhouse scene. And I had a couple hours to do it. And he came in, he was in between setups and he watched it. And he's like, all right. And then he went back out and kept directing. He invited me to his house for dinner that night. And then he just like, look, we don't know each other, but I'm impressed. He was very sweet. And he's like, you look, you want to see if this works out? And so we have never looked back. I haven't worked for anybody else since. So that was season one. I've done all five seasons of Yellowstone, to Mayor of Kingstown, 1883, now 1923. I did his Angelina Jolie movie that came out about a year ago, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And we just hit it off as people. At first, we hit it off as artists, right? Because he just makes the kind of stuff, exactly the kind of stuff that I like. Turns out he makes the kind of stuff that a lot of people like, which is cool. But, but at the time, you know, what I knew of him was Sicario, Hell or High Water, stuff that he had written. And then I had seen Wind River and, and I'd, I'd really liked that movie. To work together this successfully for this long, we realized pretty early on that we just enjoyed each other as people, you know? So it's a coincidence of artistic taste and it's a coincidence of personality. And it's a coincidence of my friend having known him and put us in the same room together. I mean, look, this, that's what separates a lot of very talented people in all walks of life from, you know, maybe a job that they would like to do. It's just, there is that initial coincidence. And then we kind of took it from there as people. And then over years, it's, it's close. Like, you know, they treat, he and his wife and son treat me like a family member. Like I'm, I consider myself close to them. They know my family. You forge a relationship that begins, you know, something with work and then it becomes something greater and it continues to grow. So I mean, at this point now, I've done something like 50 some odd episodes of his various television series and a, and a Warner Brothers movie for him. So it all started off with just the fact that I was a reality editor. There is no way to predict how you are going to find yourself, you know, moving through your career. I just was happily doing the best that I could, working really hard. And then this was presented to me. So now my life is very different now than it was five or six years ago, just because I work in a completely different part of the business. But that's how it started. Pretty random, right? Yeah, pretty random. But yeah. a couple of things that interest me about that story is, one is a lot of reality show editors will ask, you know, how do I break into scripted? And yeah. I've talked to several people that were former reality show editors that have moved on, and it's always something kind of random, and it has to do with that idea which gets bad rap, which is it's who you know. Because you got this job not because oh, he's your dad or something like that, where he had to give you the job. It was, you knew randomly somebody that was his friend right. and you proved yourself. It's not like nepotism, but it is no. truly who you knew. I think what the best thing that you can do for yourself in your career 
is no matter what type of show you're doing, you could be cutting corporate videos, wedding videos, reality TV, documentary, featured, scripted. It's best if you leave a trail of satisfied clients in your wake. Because because I was just doing the best that I could at the job that was in front of me all the time, all the time. I worked really, really hard on whatever show I was on. I wanted the thing that was the hardest. I wanted the scene that just wasn't working. That was something that, you know, we didn't quite get this in production. I was like, well, let me, let me try it. I want to try it. I went through my career just aggressively pursuing improvement, right? The conversations that happen where that lead to you getting a job somewhere are things you never know about. They're between two people in another state or whatever going like, yeah, I know this guy. He, he's pretty good. He works hard or like this, that, and the other, whatever it is. And, and you have already done the work to put yourself in that position to get the job. You don't realize that that's happening. So all you can do is be relentless at improving yourself and doing the best work that you can all the time. And then if and when something comes up, you'll be the name that someone thinks of. And that's what happened to me. And I wasn't doing it for that reason. I was just doing it because I was, I really loved my job. I still love my job, but I loved my job when I was a reality editor too. I really did. It's really hard. It's a lot harder than scripted from a story standpoint. I think every editor should have to do a reality show and or a documentary just to understand what goes into putting those kinds of stories together. I just instinctually worked on solving story problems and crafting stories just every possible way that you could do it. A valuable, valuable experience. And I didn't go looking for, for this relationship. I wasn't seeking it out. I didn't meet someone at a party or I, I just was someone whose, who's, you know, name was on the tip of someone's tongue at the right time. And then I took it from there. Like I said, Taylor and I, if we didn't like each other as people, and if he, if we didn't see eye to eye as artists, we wouldn't still be working together, but we do. And I hope it continues for a long, long time. Yeah. As you pointed out, even though you knew somebody, you still have to have the reputation that they want to put their reputation on the line by introducing you. Yeah. You can know someone in the wrong way. We think like, oh, don't ever hire this guy. Oh man, he's terrible. Or not even terrible. He's just miserable to work with. On the occasions when I go talk to you know, film students or what have you, I tell them that your personality, especially when you're starting out, your personality has so much more to do with your success than your skill set. Because if you are a hard worker and you're the kind of person that people want to have in their orbit, they will teach you the stuff that you don't know because they'll want you to know it so that they can keep moving you up and keep working with you. So God, just work hard and pursue knowledge, pursue the things that you don't know. Get in a little bit over your head from time to time. It's good for you. That's the only way that you grow. I've done it. And like, I've looked around on a couple of times in my career. I'm like, man, I'm not sure. I don't know if I can do this. And then you just, you sink or swim, right? You just have to find a way forward. More than knowing how to use an Avid or more than like having an encyclopedic knowledge of history of film and television. It's like, can you tell a story? And are you someone that, that people enjoy spending 10 hours yeah. a day? Do I want to hang out with you? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah, so I, I love it. Let's talk a little bit about editing. I've got a specific thing that you might not remember cutting, but hopefully the overall idea sure. we can talk about. Season four of Yellowstone, episode one, has a bunch it. of jump cuts and mayhem before the credit sequence. It's crazy. Talk to me about the usefulness of jump cuts and choosing not to cut in continuity. Yeah. A couple things. Yellowstone overall has a very classical style in the way that it's shot, actually, if you think about it. What jump cuts help you to do is to keep people on their toes and they allow you to cut from energy to energy to energy to energy mm -hmm. instead of geography to geography to geography, right? Because what's exciting, what keeps people engaged in the story is the emotion of it and being swept up in that. And so when you're jump cutting, especially something is like, you know, maybe an action sequence or what have you, then you're just exposing them to the most exciting 
dramatic, scary, horrifying, whatever moments in a sequence back to back to back. So then they stop experiencing your story as a thing that has to make sense for a moment. They're just experiencing an emotion. And I think to me, jump cuts are the easiest way to get inside a character's memory, right? Because we don't remember things in a linear fashion. Think about some of the things that, that were most important to you in your life. I think about the day, like the day that my daughter was born. I remember snapshots of the hospital and the delivery room and all of that. And I remember feeling the things that you feel when you have a child, which is the most incredible moment of my life. But I remember them in pieces. And so certainly, you know, especially when you're dealing with how a character might have perceived a scene emotionally, jump cuts can be very effective because you're just flashing through at the way that it would flash through their mind in memory, if that makes sense. I mean, Taylor actually talks about this a lot. At some point, geography stops mattering if you're telling an effective emotional story. I'm very meticulous about like in an action sequence, people like feeling they know where their place is. The audience knows where they're placed inside the action sequence. But after a time, if you've got them, then they just want to ride this emotional wave with you, right? And so you can break down, you can put away the geography for a second and just start moving them through the story and experiencing something visceral that just makes them feel. And they just forget about the story for a second. And look, you say these things are all like kind of theoretical. I don't know if people actually have that experience, but that's what the goal is, right? Ultimately, the goal is they don't think about any of it and just go, oh my God, that was incredible. And then in that first act of episode one of season four of Yellowstone was just some of the most actually fun sequences that I've ever cut together. It was just this wild, we put our foot on the gas, we don't stop. It's like 13 minutes of just like mayhem. And then the credits hit, it's like, welcome to season four. That was <laughs> exactly, that was a lot of fun to do. I'm sure that a lot of the story pacing, the kind of the macro pacing of the story is due to Taylor's writing and the scripts. But mm -hmm. talk to me about what you do in post to enhance that by having dynamics in the editing, mm -hmm. having the craziness of scene one of season four. And mm -hmm. then there are very moody, thoughtful moments of the show. How do you support that in editing? Oh, you have to always be thinking about dynamics, visual dynamics and audio dynamics, not even just levels, just in pace. Look, my background is that for the first half of my life, I was a classical musician. Like I was in the band and I followed it through like college years. So music is just something that I am always thinking about. And music dynamics are incredibly important. The loud is, is only loud if you've had something soft before it, right? And a lot of editors talk about this, but I think it comes very, very naturally to me to just be always be looking for the moment where you can have something explode and then just settle. And then there's nothing. And then you have to think about it or feel it. Or it like rings out not only in your ears, but in like your chest, you know, like in, and in your mind, as you think about what you've just seen, if all you do is have just action, 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 it gets exhausting. And similarly, if all you do is just slow contemplative, you know, people looking at each other and that gets exhausting as well, because you're trying to find a way to connect to what's happening. It's something that you only find out really when you've. You usually cut all the little scenes, cut all the scenes together, right? And this is how just any movie, TV show, they're shot out of work, cut them together. And then you watch the whole thing for the first time and go, okay, is it a roller coaster ride? Or is it just like a long slog up the hill or a long, slow descent, you know? And if it is one of those latter two things, you have to find a way to change that up so that your audience remains engaged. Editors are all different. I, I spend a ton of time on sound design in my offline edits. And we have excellent sound teams that then take that and they will use different effects or what have you. But I, I leave a very specific roadmap in the audio track as to what I think should happen. 
it might be like all sound goes away in a violent action scene and we just hear, we hear nothing. We hear little pin drop kind of moments from various sound elements on screen. I spent a lot of time with that and it's all towards what you're saying, which is that the dynamics are going to need to keep my audience engaged with me. I want to make sure that I don't lose them. If we've got a long dialogue scene, then what comes next? We've got to maybe elevate the pace and the sound design, the visual design. It's just constant. It's like breathing. It's not even a thing that I think I think about. And I don't think I'm unique in that sense, but it's a powerful tool. Taylor is aware of that as well. So like in a good script, it will be written in that something exciting happens and then, or something violent, and then maybe you'll take a pause or you pull back. And then you try to go back and forth that way. But on a page, it's different. You might have a good roadmap, but when you put it all together, like, ah, this is, you know, we've got a little too much dead space here. Can we take this sequence and move it? Can we split up these two quieter parts with something big and exciting? That's part of just crafting the episode after you've put it together. It's the main way that you keep people interested. You've got to keep changing things up. Now, all that to say, you know, separately, when you have characters that people are interested in, they will watch them do something quiet for a long time. I remember there was something, it was like season one or two of Yellowstone. And it was Kevin Costner, Horstall. And he was, it was a dialogue with some character. And then the character walked out. And then Kevin just kind of like sat there. And then he like walked over to the window, the horse stall and started looking out. And it was just like, like even in the daily, just fascinated. I put it in the cut and Taylor's like, ah, that's why you hire Academy Award winning actors. And I was like, you didn't tell him to do that? He's like, no, I didn't tell him to do that. And he just did it. Just watching him do nothing was fascinating. There are people that I've had the good fortune of cutting, working on Taylor's shows, Sam Elliott, just is fascinating as a face and a person and a personality. Oh, yeah. And you could just watch them do nothing. And there's something, there's always something happening in their face. So what that depends on is an actor who's embodying a character to an uncommon degree, to the kind of thing that you get when you work with those kind of folks. Hopefully a situation and a script that, that supports it, that, that you are emotionally invested in. And if, again, if you're emotionally invested in something, you will watch silence for a long time, just like watching people feel, right? That's not something that always works, but it can. When we have a scene where it's just characters in the aftermath of something or a quiet dialogue exchange, I'm very comfortable to let it just sit on one person's face and just watch them and just watch what they're bringing to that character and not cut away from it at all. So there are times we'll have like 10, 15 second shots in dialogue sequence just because what they're doing is so interesting. It is absolutely as important as the quick cutting action stuff is to just know when it's time to rest and sit and watch and... And, and let the um, audience process, right? 100%, 100%. They start putting in, what have we seen so far and what does this mean? I, I can tell what he's thinking and or I can tell what she's thinking. And so, yeah, it gives them time to advance the story in their mind. You know, like, where are we? We're just, all right, we're going to rest. What have we been watching? What are we, what are we feeling right now? So it goes back to the dynamics discussion, but also a writing and a performance thing, because mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, just letting people be the character for a bit and not getting in their way. A lot of people have talked to me about editors having styles, which I don't think is true. And I think most editors that I've talked to have said, you better not have a style. Better not. Yeah. yeah. And I was thinking about that with you in particular with Yellowstone in 1883, because I was kind of watching them simultaneously and they are paced very differently. Talk about the difference of one project and another. And is that something you're finding just from the dailies are speaking you to cut that pace of 1883 or is it something else? The dailies always will tell you what the pace is. 
I think, first of all, you're right. Like an editor should not have their own style. If you think that you have a style, then you're limiting yourself and placing yourself in front of the story or in front of the show. M movies have styles. Directors have styles. You can think of five directors off the top of your head like, oh, that's a, you know, that's a Guy Ritchie thing. That's a Quentin Tarantino thing, whatever it is. But the dailies should always be what tells you how to cut it. If you don't mind, we getting to like methodology. I guess, no, I, that's exactly what I, I want. I'll, I'll watch, let's say a scene has five or six setups. And there are three, four cameras each. On 1923, we actually have five just because of the scheduling, which is a lot. If there's a setup that had five takes, I'll start at take five and I'll watch that first. Because take five is where they think they got it, right? Usually the actors and the DP and, and director and all that piece. All right, we got it moving on. And I will then watch take four. Take four and five are usually the most important because a lot of times they'll think we got it on take four. Let's do another one, see what happens, right? So those two takes are really, really important. But then you also have to watch three, two, and one and actually do it in that order because you will find Sometimes, especially when you're working with really exceptional actors, they will come in having thought about something and they will have their performance figured out on take one. And you better be ready to see that and you better not overlook it. If Harrison Ford is coming in to like do a scene, he's thought about it. Helen Mirren, they've thought about it. And sometimes on take one, you just get this magic from these professionals, these artists who are just ready and who are already embodying that character. I think for actors that are less experienced, they'll kind of ramp into it. And three, four, and five are really important takes for them. You'll also find, I mean, this is just a reality, like when, when you have big movie stars like that, and then you have people acting in scenes against them, they're nervous sometimes. You can hear their heartbeat thumping through their love on take one, right? I've just that hammering, before. hammering <laughs> away. What am I hearing? What's like, that sound? Oh my yeah, God. Oh, no, that's someone's racing heartbeat. Make sure we have the medic on standby. And then they'll, 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 they'll takes two, three, four, their heartbeat will kind of like settle down and they just start doing it. So overall, did we get at reasons? I start at the end and then I move towards the beginning and make sure that I'm not missing anything that a performer gave that should be in the show. And then you do that over the course of a scene. And the way that I put it together is for each beat and sometimes each line of dialogue, I'll just build what we used to call a chem roll. And you've just got like this maybe 45 minute sequence. It's like someone says, I love you six times in a row. And then you see them back to back and it's, it becomes quite clear which one is the best for the scene that you're cutting. I always make a duplicate of that sequence. So I've got, if I ever lose myself in a scene, putting a scene together, I could just go back and watch the 45 minute chem roll of what I thought were the best or just all of the moments put back to back. And I'll compare them. Let's say someone says, I love you. And we've seen them do it six times. Maybe take three is my favorite. So that one goes in front. And then any others, it's like, oh, are you beating that one? All right. Yes. You go in front now in my sequence. Or if not, no, you're, you're pretty good. You go on the other side of, I love this one. And then just have this long string out of material that I can always go back to and watch if I've gone down a path that I don't like. Like, all right, where did we all start? What did everybody give me? And then you just watch it again and let it wash over you and, and get back to it. So I just go through that way. I've realized I've kind of forgot what your initial question was, though. I feel like I've gone on no, a No, no, no. That's why I love this idea and to, to continue this. So here's the other question, and everybody uses different words. A chemroll I use as literally every setup with every take laid mm -hmm. back to back to back for their entirety. And then like a selects reel, it's mm -hmm. all, once again, it's all everybody's terminology, which is all different. Or a line reading reel where it's, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Yeah. The whole thing. And I do both. So I'll start with a chem roll and then start breaking it down into a selects roll. And then you keep them both, right? Yeah. And even if you cut it right, even if maybe Taylor comes in and he goes, I think she's too hot on that yeah. reading do we have less energy or more energy? Then you can go back to that select and go, yeah, we yeah. do. Here's, here's one. Exactly right. I don't really have the patience to do all that many intermediate steps. 
I go from like the 45 minute to the two minute pretty quickly or whatever the scene requires. But along the way, I will save and duplicate and like, all right, I might be doing something here that won't work. So I'm going to duplicate where I am right now, make a new sequence and then go to town. The freedom of doing that is like, I could try anything. I can always go back in time to where I felt, you know, I've got, I got what I think is the best stuff and then back further to where I've got everything. And you can step forward and backward as you work through a scene. That's a method that a lot of editors have landed on. And I, I didn't even realize it until I was, I think it was on your podcast. I, and I don't remember who it was, someone talking about it. I'm like, oh, I do that. And I bet a lot of editors do that. It's just a way to, to let everything kind of wash over you. I also don't have the patience to just watch dailies. I don't have it. I've never had it. I have to be doing something immediately with them. I have to either be putting them into this, this camera roll or selects or whatever. And I need to be working on it right away. I can't just sit there and watch. When I think about what folks used to do and they would just string up the reels at, at night after the end of a shoot day and watch dailies for three hours, I can't imagine anything more painful. Yeah, again, that's it's another place where editors are very different. There are people that say when you watch dailies, it should be a completely passive exercise. And then mm -hmm. there's multiple people that are like, no, you've got to be active right from the beginning. Otherwise, you're just wasting time. Especially, you, you know, TV, right? TV schedules sometimes, you just do not have that time. Well, I mean, the timelines on the shows that we're doing are tend to be absurd. But I think that your first, your gut instinct and your first reaction to something is really, really valuable. And you don't get that back. You only get to do it once, right? So what was in the moment, what struck you about a performance or a line reading or a shot? I want to grab that right then and there. And just like, this was important to me. This felt right. And put that into a timeline. And then again, start like ranking the other ones and going before, or I like placing shots before or after that one based on how much I like that take. But your audience only sees it once. I mean, if they love a movie, they'll watch it 50 times, right? But they're just letting it wash over them and they're, they're experiencing it in real time. And so I think that everyone can have their own method and that's fine. I understand the logic of passively watching dailies, but I just start reacting to it right away as a viewer. And so I want to be able to start making decisions and making notes to myself in that first viewing. Your first impression of, of a sequence, a take, a shot, whatever is so important. And I don't want to lose that. One of the things that I love about Yellowstone, although 1883 for sure, I feel the same way, is some scenes with incredible tension. I will let you kind of think about a scene that you think is tense from something you've caught. How do you generate tension in a scene? A slower pace, temp music? What's giving you tension in a scene? You got to have good writing first and you got to have good performances. So let's take it for granted that we have those two things. Early. You don't have to. It certainly helps a lot. I think withholding information for as long as possible is really uncomfortable. It makes people really, I'm trying to think of an example from something that I've done. I mean, I think Taylor's work is rather rich with that kind of situation, but it's the unknown and the unseen that makes people uncomfortable and makes them tense. Let's say that there was a shot of me and I'm holding a gun against some other character and I shoot and then you don't cut away from me. Like you're one, what happened? Did you hit him? Like, is he, is he dead alive? Like what's happening? Did he run away? The not knowing is such a fun tool to have just keeping it, holding on until that last second. And then you released, oh, there's what happened. Oh my gosh. Well, what next? You know? And like, well, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you just yet. So there are a million ways to do that. One is just like, just quite literally the pace at which you cut things how long you hold on a shot or what have you. Also, you can do it with audio. I feel like this is a clunky example, but let's just keep using it. The gunshot, and then you hear a scream and then nothing, and then maybe some footsteps or some rustling. So the audio, the sound effects are giving you additional pieces of information that are like saying what's happening next in the story, even if you don't have the visual information. 
holding it back and not releasing it until that absolute last possible second is a guiding principle in creating tension, I think. You won't find anyone who's more interested in, and I think probably hopefully aware of, of what the effect music has on a cut than me, just because it's part of my soul, my life. Knowing when not to use music is so powerful, right? That becomes like the graduate school level of working with music. That's like when you don't even see the code anymore in the matrix. I don't need it here because you have the confidence to say that the story is doing all the work for me. Let's say you and I are, are sitting in a scene together and the audience knows we don't like each other. I can put in a piece of music to tell them that, or I could just let our looks tell the audience that. And the silence, the uncomfortable silence of something, the sounds in the environment, little things that you hear. So yes, music can create tension, but silence can also create so much tension. Sometimes in, in moments of greatest tension in Yellowstone, or certainly in 1923, there's a sequence right now that I'm thinking of, taking the music away and forcing the audience to like just watch something that is unpleasant or that they don't want to happen to a character and not commenting on it musically is actually so much more powerful. That's what I think with tension. Music often kills the tension because it lets you know what the intent is. Like, oh, yeah. this is supposed to be scary. Oh, this is, I mean, this person's going to be in trouble. But if there's no music, you have no mm -hmm. clue. Yeah, or like you'll start to hear like a like a riser or something and you're like, oh, the killer's about to come or <laughs> the, something is going to come from off screen and I know it because I'm hearing it because you're telling me. And it's all a part of like withholding information, right? You're withholding the information that the score would give you. The score would tell you right now like, okay, be happy, be sad, be afraid. Or again, like you said, in the absence of that, I don't know what to feel. Holy crap, I think I'm happy or I'm sad or I'm afraid or, or what have you. And the audience member is along for the ride and doing that work themselves use music plenty. We do in, in all in shows and it's, I think it's very effective, but I'll usually wait until after the moment of decision for an audience as to how they're feeling about something, if that makes sense. The scene has resolved itself and then we'll comment on what you've seen and or use it to transition to a new scene. But I think if you're doing it correctly, you don't use it to give the audience the answer to a scene. Make them work, watch, engage and be involved and make their own decisions and, and find their own answers for a scene and then you can comment on it afterwards and then so hopefully you haven't spoiled whatever they came to whatever the audience member came to so yeah really really potent tool but you got to be so careful with it and it's the same thing with like you know you can do it like in a love story that's a crutch like oh these two people are falling in love and then we're going to tell you and then it doesn't feel as earned as if you know you just like well, i don't know are they falling in love do i believe what i'm seeing and if you do if you believe it and the writing is good and the performances are good then the payoff is so much greater i think if you haven't layered any tricks in there, you know, if you've just let the writing and the actors do the work, like we've got all the tricks, we can use them if we have to. But ideally, you just want to watch two people connect and just experience that and, and experience it without anything else around it. And so I'm just sort of aware of that, aware of like, yeah, we could do a million things to make it very obvious what the answer should be to a scene, or we could let you figure it out and then tell you maybe, all right, yeah, we kind of think that too. Here's the music. And then, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And Something you pointed out to me just in that about using music as a tr more of a transition, like after, mm -hmm. after the scene has told you what it is, then the music comes in. I think if people watch film and TV, they'll see that some of the best use of music is more transitional than it is from the beginning to the end. Yep. If you're just wallpapering your show with music, then it's like anything else. It just becomes this dint or it becomes 
you know, the action movie that we talked about, it's just all gunfire and explosions. And then you're just numb to it after a while. If you have a, you know, what we call wall to wall, right? Music. And there's a lot of shows that do that. Then the individual pieces of it stop meaning anything. And so my most common mixed note would be is, is like, hey, let's delay the start of this music cue. Three or four seconds, five seconds, whatever it is, 10 seconds. Let's, let's wait until after this line here. So delaying is the most common note. And then the music that happens over a transition allows for a reflection. Or it, it's like a palate cleanser. It's like the sorbet before the next scene. You know, it just allows you to, to reset yourself and be prepared for what comes next. So, yeah, using it as a transitional element is how we most commonly use music in Taylor shows. And again, we're not unique in that regard. There are obvious exceptions when there's an action scene. It's going to be scored, you know, usually most of the time. But sometimes not. Like one of the best action sequences I think probably most of us has ever seen is in Heat, you know, the shootout downtown. There's no music in that. And it's mesmerizing and captivating and horrifying and, and scary. We modeled the shootout in episode one of season four of Yellowstone after that sequence, the one that you brought up earlier. There's music, action, car crashes, and then the shootout happens and there's nothing. Took it all away. And it's just gunfire. And you just feel so, so very much in that scene as an audience member and just stripping away the, the movie artifice of it. Oh my God, this is, this is terrifying. So. That scene was an homage to Heat. I don't think Taylor would mind me saying that. He actually, I think, has said that. That's a scene without music that is captivating and exciting and engaging as a scene as you could think of. 1883 relies, or I shouldn't say relies, but uses voiceover throughout. Yeah. Talk to me very about... In a very polarizing way, apparently. <laughs> Talk to me about pacing that and getting in and out of it and choosing it. Yeah. 1883 was a really interesting project in so many different ways, but one of the main ones was that voiceover. God, polarizing is probably putting it lightly. There's people that really love the voiceover element of that show, and there's people that hate it, like really hate it. And 1883 is a show that really asks you to watch all 10 episodes before you make a decision about what we've done with some of these various elements. What you realize, and I mean, spoiler alert, of course, but that character has been dead the entire time. The character of Elsa in 1883 is speaking to you from beyond the grave, from the beginning. In fact, she tells you that in her opening sequence, she says, if this is hell, then I'm a demon too, and I'm already dead. And then we roll the main titles. And that's in the first three minutes of episode one of 1883. And it's, so it's there if you want it. So how do you pace that. I don't know. I mean, you listen to the cadence of the actor. I mean, it's sort of like pacing anything else. You just treat it like any scene. What is the cadence in which she is speaking? Is she describing something that was exciting for her? You know, she narrates her love story. Her, she has two love stories in that show, actually. What is the pace at which it makes the most sense to hear those things? It's another dialogue element, really. Did you have her performance from the beginning? We recorded it several times, three or four times, all of the voiceover for 1883 with Isabel was recorded. The first one was before we had shot a frame. She recorded the entire thing. And then we recorded it about third to halfway through production. And things change because now Isabel May, the brilliantly talented actress who, who was that character, had been through some things. She had lived this character, like really lived it for a while. So she felt differently. Like, she, like as she, the actor, is giving this, this voiceover dialogue, I can only imagine that she was placing herself in the scenes that we had shot thinking about what she felt as she was shooting them, being the character. And then we recorded it all once we were completely done with production. I was actually there for that one. 
there were some really wonderfully exciting differences. The weariness of the journey is what we were trying to get with that voiceover. And, you know, we weren't telling the audience that she was dead. In fact, well, you don't really know until the last episode. I think she says her last line of episode nine, when she's describing how her father looked at her and she's saying, that's when I knew I was going to die. That's the last line of episode nine. I know there are at least three complete readings of the voiceover. There are pieces of all of them in the show. And in the beginning, she is this bright-eyed, optimistic girl who's on a train moving, you know, to the rest of her life, very excited about what the future holds. She's a world-weary warrior by the end of the story. And she just played those things very, very differently. I want to say the very last line of the show or the voiceover was from that third take. I remember just hearing it and it was like, she just said it in a way that I had never heard before. And I looked at Taylor and we're like, just kind of like nodded to each other. And that was it. She was interested in exploring that voiceover and in doing it all those times. And I think she understood the exercise of like what it would sound like after she, before she'd shot during and then after. And then we just went through and like what, what, what sounded the most truthful for the scene from which performance. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I mean, the whole show was really fun to craft for that reason. It was, you know, we're like kind of playing this trick. We opened the entire series with a sequence from episode nine. So we're kind of balancing what we tell the audience and what they're starting to believe about the character. Voiceover was a big part of it. I think voiceover had its moment in the history of film and television, and then it kind of became vilified for a while. It's like, it's like it's just only thought of as a crutch. And I understand that because it certainly can be a crutch. And so it's very much passe, I think, now to use voiceover. This story required it because of the story that we were telling, how we were telling it, and the perspective of the character. We needed her to have the perspective of being beyond the grave to tell the story properly. So it was just a thing. It was part of it from day one. We start the show with it and people had like, oh no, we don't, we don't like voiceover anymore. You know, this isn't right. I think that folks who watched the series all the way through understood it. What I've heard from people is like, yeah, I didn't like it beginning, but then I understood it. And by the end, she made me weep when the last shot rolls. I mean, I cried every time I watched that damn show. <laughs> it's, it's very emotionally effective. And as you get through the show, it almost feels like the voiceover is not voiceover. It feels like she's talking to someone. You feel that that's not the point of her voice is mm -hmm. voiceover. It's not like she's trying to tell you the story. She's trying to reveal feelings that maybe you could get if it was a, a novel. Well, the, the word novel is exactly what comes. I was just about to say, it's, it's sort of like a book. You get all the wonderful things about being inside someone's head that you get from a book. And again, it's just the way that Taylor crafted this story. You needed that. You needed to be inside of her head to properly experience the story that he was telling. You needed her emotional perspective. A couple, couple times her plot perspective, but really it's just all about emotional perspective. And she just becomes like this weathered veteran, you know, like I said, warrior. That journey was in, in 10 episodes of television. I don't think it would have been as rewarding if you didn't get to go along that trip with her in her mind and have her talk to you about some of the things that she was feeling and experiencing. The giddiness of, of love and uh, young love and then absolute devastation of loss of that love and what that feels like. Isabel is a generationally talented actress, in my opinion. So if, you've ever gonna, if you're ever going to do it, it's with someone like her. I mean, she was just, uh, she was exceptional. But I think it just added this layer that made that story so much more emotionally engaging to hear from her. And there's people that disagree with me, and that's fine. You know, everyone gets to have their opinion about it, but that's what we did. And 1923 has released, and so now people have heard that we are doing it again. It's to a lesser degree. But it's just part of the, it's part of the story, and I think it, it helps. I, I love the idea that somebody once told me about criticism from audiences or 
notes kind of thing, not notes from a director, but maybe a studio is a lot of times they're not making the same movie you're making. If somebody says they don't like the voiceover, that's your version of this movie. Our version of the movie has voiceover. It's so true. I mean, notes are like a whole thing, right? How you deal with notes is, I mean, it's such a, a big part of this job. If you can't take a note, you don't get to be an editor. Like that's just the reality of it. 100%. Right? Or you, you don't get to do it for very long. But what you're saying is you have to understand or at least be willing to look at where the note is coming from. It's like people aren't always trying to, to make the same movie that you are, right? So let's say that I was sitting in a notes session. Let's say I'd cut the Avengers or someone. I get this note like, you know, this is good, but there's just too many damn superheroes in it. Well, they're not trying to make the best Marvel movie that we can make, right? They're, they're making some other movie that they have in their head that has some of the same thematic elements or what have you. So notes are valuable by give notes, right? I try to put myself in that place as well. Like, well, okay, I don't really identify with this story. I'm not like, I'm not engaged, but I want to help you make the best version of it that you can make. So trying to understand what you're trying to do, here's what I think would help you bring forward the best version of this thing that you are trying to make, even if it doesn't appeal to me directly. Look, we're in the business of making entertainment for people. So an audience doesn't have to really, like, they just get to like it or not. And that's fine. Like, not everyone's going to like it. You know, people will apologize. Like, oh, I saw that. I didn't really like it. I'm sorry. Like, you don't have to apologize. You're a person. Like, there's 7 billion of us. We're all going to have different feelings about this stuff that we watch. It doesn't, I don't take that personally. And the other 6 billion actually do like it. Yeah, there's a lot of people that do. Thankfully, there's, there's a lot of fans of the stuff that we do, Yellowstone and the various shows that we do. There's a lot of people that don't like them. That's fine. That's the way it's supposed to be. You know, if everybody liked it, that would just be boring, I think. I enjoy the discussions that shows bring about. Some of the most interesting discussions I have with friends are on, on movies that we just are just aggressively disagree about and trying to understand why a person feels a certain way about something. It just tells you something about people. When you're an editor, you get notes from a lot of people. You get them from director, sometimes the writer, if they have a, if they have a producing position as well on the show. You get them from the studio or the network. And... My feeling about them is that unless you wrote the show or unless you, be, you came up with the idea for it, the concept, and you hired the writer to write the show, there have been people who have been thinking about this show longer than you have, no matter what. It's true for every editor. Those people deserve to have their ideas tried. And they deserve to have them tried to the best of your professional abilities. I feel that very strongly. And so I, I feel that responsibility in my job. I may disagree. I often disagree. I have an ego just like every other editor, but they deserve my best effort at trying their note and seeing if it works or at least showing them, you know what? I know that this is what you had in mind. It doesn't work. Here's why. Here's the evidence. I'll show it to you. I took some time. I did my best version of it. It doesn't work. And then they can say, okay, I see that. Let's move on. Or they say, no, I, you know, sometimes they'll want to push further with it. And then you go through that. But the other thing to remember about notes is that some of the worst notes lead to accidental, beautiful discoveries because you're doing a note and you might hate it, but it forces you to go back and watch your footage again. Oh, I missed this the first time. Or, oh, now that I've put the movie together, this performance means something different to me. And because I'm going through my dailies again, just kind of going back to square one to see what's there, I'm, I'm finding that. And I may not have found that if I hadn't been doing this crappy note that I hate. You know, it's all valuable. You got to be careful as an editor. There's this kind of perception. We kind of get in online forums and you see this thing about Logan. Every, everybody else is stupid. Only an editor is smart. That's just not true. I know some brilliantly intelligent like producers, executives, and what have you. We have different jobs and we come at the material differently, but it doesn't mean they're stupid. 
I mean, there's some of them are because there's stupid people everywhere, right? But like some of them are really, really smart. A defense mechanism, I think, amongst editors is to be like, oh, you know, that note is dumb. And it's because you don't want to think that you maybe missed a performance the first time around or missed a, a beat that you could have used the first time around. The faster you can get over that, the more you become a collaborative artist that is willing to find new things. The most deadly thing you can do on a long running series is to become too pleased with yourself. And to feel like I've got this figured out. You have to always be looking for something different, a new way to tell a story, a new way to tell a scene. It might be like in Yellowstone, there's a lot of horses. There's a lot of stuff that we do and a lot of ranch stuff. Well, all right, I've got this scene. It kind of feels like something I might have cut a couple seasons ago, but how do I make it different? What is it? What is a way that I can, that I can do this to where it feels unique? It feels fresh to me, to me first, right? Because I'm the first audience. And to keep not becoming too satisfied with myself, like, oh man, Yellowstone, I got that nailed, man. I can cut that in my sleep. Well, I could. It would start to be really bad and boring at some point, right? Because it just, if you're not trying to discover new things and constantly challenge yourself, then you will start making something that feels stale. And tying it back to the notes, I mean, I think that the notes, you notes that you get from people can help you, can be one of the things that help you not be stale, not be too pleased with yourself, not to feel that you've got everything figured out and to be willing to accept, to hear that and to accept it into your, your workflow that you may not have everything figured out. And I think it's, it's important. The best editors that I know are people that are constantly looking to improve and not to feel that they've got it figured out. Not the people that are trying to like shut out any critique or criticism. My feeling is like, bring it on. If, if I disagree with you, I will tell you, but I will also, I'm happy to have the discussion and I'm happy to do the work that goes into deciding whether or not I agree with you or not. I think it's really important if you want to have a long career. I can't overstate the importance of that, actually. I've told this story a couple of times about how I cut out a bunch of lines from a scene in the script without the director's permission, just because I thought they needed to go. And the director was quite upset about it, put them back in. And I tell the story about being very pleased with myself because by the end of a year of cutting a film, all those lines had been cut back out sure. again, right? So yeah. I was right. That is the wrong thing to take from that story, right? The right thing to take from the story is the director needed to see his vision and to be able to see, oh, you're right, it doesn't work. But there's no yeah. way he can take, there's no way he can own that if he can't see it. So he's got to see the lines, he's got to see it the way he needs to see it. And you can't just tell somebody that's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> even if it, even if it truly doesn't, it, you just can't tell it. hundred percent true. It's it's common to call the first cut of a movie or a TV show the editor's cut. I don't. I've never called it that. I call it a script cut. And it's not. I'm not trying to like you know like absolve myself of response. I'm just like you want. You got to see all the lines. By and large, if you have the time and the luxury of of, of doing it, and most of the time you do, you, you you've got to put the whole thing together. Just like like let everybody see it. My first cut of Those Who Wish Me Dead was two hours and 40 minutes long. It's a 94 minute movie. The version we released is 94 minutes. You've just got to go through that process. You just got to put it all out there. And look, sometimes if I feel strongly that even on my first go through of something that some lines have to go, I'll cut that version. I'll just have it. After you've shown the version that has everything, like this is what I think about this scene. I think we could do without this, that, and the other. But then also you can be blinded as an editor a bit by your own feeling that you've got a slicker way to put something together and you'll miss like, well, yeah, it's cleaner visually if I cut these two lines out, but it's, I actually am forgetting this thing that happens in act three where these two lines are important. That's kind of a clunky example, but just but like- need, Or you, you need a pad, you need a little lead in, you need a pad. Maybe those lines aren't important. The audience is even thinking about them because they're thinking about yeah. the previous scene or something. Yeah. There's all sorts of reasons why you can be quote unquote right or wrong about 
lifting lines or or what have you. Going back to the notes thing, like at some point, these these people that have been working on this story, this movie TV show, have been thinking about it for a long, long time and they had a roadmap and they just want to see if the map works, the map being the script. Once you've seen it and digested it, and you usually have to watch it a few times, then you start being less precious about it. And that happens for everybody. It happens for the director, producers. You know, you start letting go of what you wanted something to be. Once you've shot a movie, the script is is useless in my opinion. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? Like you've you've yeah. shot it and then you have it. Going back to methodology a little bit, before I cut any scene of anything, I read that scene again on the page just to put it back in my head as to what, you know, there are little clues that that you'll find in the writing of it. And I want to make sure that I've at least seen all those things and I'm looking for them when I'm going through the dailies. Once it's all shot, you never look at it again. You never look at the script again. At least I don't. I just look, all right, here's what we got. And we, we have this, that, and the other, and these things are resonating properly. This one that was maybe written in doesn't, so that goes away. And some of it goes back to the reality editor thing. Like from what I have seen, the editors I have worked with, I tend to be less concerned about throwing away scripts as some other folks are. I think you can get it ingrained and you're like, no, you have to, it has to be, this isn't the script. It has to be that way. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Like it doesn't, it doesn't work. One of the tricks or one of the benefits of having had that background is like, okay, the, the roadmap, our script tells us that if we watch this scene and we watch this scene, then we're supposed to feel this way about these two characters. What if you don't? Then you got to start working. Then you got to start figuring something out. You've got to repurpose dialogue in a way that wasn't intended or shots in a way that they weren't intended, putting together sequences in a way that they were not intended. And you have to stop thinking about what the plan was and just look about what the result is and, and making something that, that connects. God, I couldn't, it couldn't have been more true than on those who wish me dead. There was a lot of that. There was a lot of like, okay, this is what we have. How are we going to make the most exciting version of this story? I think it's more common in feature films just because you tend to have so much more material and you spend so much more time cutting something than you do with a, a episode of television. Mostly, you just don't have the luxury of time in, in TV. Not the way we do it, at least. We started shooting, gosh, we started shooting 1923 in August and it was on the air in December. Same thing with 1883 last year. It's an absurdly short amount of time for the scale of production that we have. You talked a little bit about sound effects and the use of music and not even having sound. And I think a great mm -hmm. example of that is midway through the episode in 1883, The Crossing is a flashback yeah. to the Civil War the sound effects hits and the silence, the things you're hearing, the things you're not hearing. Mm -hmm. Sync sound isn't even part of the scene at the beginning. No, not at all. That's one of my favorite sequences. One of my favorite episodes of 1883 is that episode. It was episode four. And I guess to me, it's, it also goes back to memory, to what we were talking about, memory. Shay, Sam Elliott's character, is having a nightmare about his experiences in the war. You know, what are the things that would still stick out to him? in that dream, what would he, what would he hear? He might hear this one gunshot. He might see lips move, but not remember what people said. You either hear nothing or you hear this like garbled kind of mess of sound and dialogue. And then there's gunfire. And then we have the, the thing that shakes him out of the, out of the nightmare is this line of soldiers that, that were waiting for them as his, as his crew was, you know, his battalion was, was advancing up a hill. And then this barrage of very clear very present gunfire, at least in, in the soundtrack. And this was, and that's the way I had it tempt. That would be the thing that he will never forget. And so I mean, this is what I was deciding and, and, and then showed it to Taylor and he was like, yes, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, but, but just pleasing myself on the first go around, like this is what I just decided. That sound, that line of gunfire 
would be something that he could hear very clearly for the rest of his life. Everything else is just they're the details that go away. And so that, that sequence was constructed based on what my impression of his memory would be, right? Memory and the retelling of things and how we're able to retell them what we remember. It's the game of telephone, right? You've ever played that when we were kids and then the message is one thing and then it goes through and it's, it ends up as another. You just don't tell the stories of your life the way they actually happen. Nobody does. But you remember certain things forever. Going back to the day my daughter was born, for instance, I don't remember a lot, but I remember the first time I heard her cry. I will never forget that as long as I live. And, uh, so and if you're the, the rest cutting, of it, Matt, you use no sync until the no crying sound. starts. And then the crying happens like, yep, I will never forget that ever. I could tell you right now what it sounded like. Because I was so relieved, and that's that moment when you have a when you have a kid, and the doctors are there, and they all just want to make sure that that she cries the first time. That's just the way that that I decided to do that, and I've, I've used that stylistically a number of times. And Yellowstone, we did it. Some of the stuff with Casey when he was remembering a battle that he was in. It's interesting to make choices about what a character would have taken away from a moment in their life, and then that's what you share with the audience, and then. Just as the character has to fill in the blanks around it for themselves, the audience does as well. To me, it, it, it hopefully, hopefully helps with an audience's engagement. When you see in that sequence that you're talking about, we just have this white and there's nothing in it. And then these like bayonets come into frame. You're like, oh crap, what's happening? Okay, this is a civil war battle. And then you start to hear little booms in the distance. And uh, hopefully it just sucks you in. If I tell you what I think all of that sounded like, then you're just like, you know, okay, that's, what, that's a battle. I've heard a million battles in movies and TV shows. I didn't pioneer this technique. I'm not trying to say that like no, I'm no, doing no, something no, that's never been done, but I think it is fun to let the audience fill in as many of the blanks as possible. I just think it goes to their engagement of the story. At least I hope it does. I want to talk about one other scene, which I just loved, which was the river crossing and playing the piano. Yeah, it's probably my favorite sequence in the whole in the whole show. It's stunning. And tell me Thank about you. making that. And was it meant to be intercut the whole time, or was it? She plays, she plays the piano. They cross the river. They're two separate scenes. We we had it every which way. We took two days to shoot that, and we had five cameras. We had that river crossing shot just as a straight sequence. Somewhere in my avid is a version of that that is just a straight telling of that story, like an eight minute sequence of them crossing the river and all the complications. And then separately, we had Elsa playing the piano in, in front of the Ennis. And we had those things as separate sequences, complete. We could have played them back to back. We could have done it very straightforward. The idea that I had, and it turns out Taylor had this exact idea. He just hadn't told me about it. Was this like, what if we could tie these two things together? Because what's happening emotionally at that part of the story is that all these characters are experiencing loss in different ways. Yeah. Um, That's the reason the piano's in the middle of the prairie, right? Yep. If someone had to abandon it. And Elsa has come across it and she's, you, you get the sense that she's played a little piano in her life, right? Because she's competent enough. By the way, that is Isabel May. Every note of that is her on set that day. That's Every amazing. note. It is amazing because she also gives She's acting that the whole time. She's giving she a just, killer performance. At she, the same and she did it playing. like, I've never seen anything like it, Steve. She did it six or seven times. And each time you just watch the whole thing and she goes on that journey Every single time. It is, it is quite literally, I think, the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. She's playing the piano. I was on set a lot for that show, just because Taylor was on set a lot, and so I would go to him, and we'd work, and then, I, and then we would show cuts to the actors when he wanted to, and I just I made the point of telling her, it's like, this is all your performance. Like, we didn't do anything. Because then it became a badge of honor. Like, we didn't touch it. We didn't touch it. 
So we had the two separate sequences and then loss became the, the unifying element. So we've got the people crossing the river and some people are dying or they're losing horses, you know, and their belongings. Elsa is geographically removed from that scene, right? She knows that they're out there, but she doesn't know that people are like crossing the river and dying. She's experiencing the loss of the life that she lived before. When they come across the piano, she says to her, to the cowboys, they said, do you play? She says, I, I do. And then she thinks about it. She says, I did. I'm not sure. You know, I, don't, I guess I don't play anymore because I'm not going to have that chance as the subtext. So she starts playing and it's just, it's her thinking about everything that she has given up to be where she is right now, right? And so using that as the foundation for the loss that all of these characters are experiencing in different ways became, I, I think just, it, it just worked. It just, it just like that idea that Taylor had originally had and that I sort of separately stumbled upon just worked. So then it became what is aligning her experience and her just again, over the scene just progressively breaks down and then we're seeing things go to hell in the river. Just finding little ways to come in and out of those various stories. We, we see Margaret, Faith Hill's character, screaming. And again, we don't hear the, the sound. The only sound is the piano. The piano tells us the entire story. I mean, I certainly tempt it without anything else. And I think we maybe added like a little bit of detail, sound detail here and there. But we just let that piano and the sound of her starting to cry. That was part of it as well. It's a really important part of it. And then you're seeing the images of the, of the people. It was one of those things like that was a hopeful, like maybe this will work. And then it just, it really worked. That cut hardly changed from the first pass at it. It changed a little bit, but it was it's just one of those beautiful things that clicked. You have this idea, you write it on the page, you shoot it, you hope that we could, we could do it this way. You protected yourself every which way in case it didn't work, but then it just worked. In a very gratifying way, a lot of folks have mentioned to me that that's one of their, their favorite oh, yeah. sequences. And, and I just remembered at the end of her playing piano, one of the cowboys says, don't you know anything happy? Yeah. <laughs> something like Yep. What? She kind of chuckles and said, I, yeah, she says, I but never have much releases, use for the happy ones. So tell me, actually, that's a really good, interesting thing to talk about. You could cut that out. You could not have him say that line. And then. Yeah. That's an editorial yeah, you, decision. It is an editorial decision, but there was something about the release of that, that felt, that felt right. You know, when you're doing something that intense, you're, you're always teetering on the edge of melodrama. I think a little bit, the most desperate sad stories that you've ever watched in film and television, you have to have moments of humor to break things up. It's the dynamics that we were talking about earlier. Like you've asked people to cry for about three and a half minutes and, and a lot of them do. And then you just, you just release that tension and say, it's a way of saying, thank you. Thank you for going along this journey with us. I think it just keeps it grounded in reality. I mean, it was actually like a very logical thing for that character to say in that moment. Taylor's a pretty brilliant writer. And so, you know, that was written in. And it was performed really well. And she had the exact right reaction to it. Isabella yeah, had the exact right reaction to it. Great. And it wasn't like the story doesn't become, the episode doesn't become uplifting after that. I mean, she goes, she actually then travels and sees the devastation and sees her mother, who's just catatonic after having had to do what she did in the river, which is to kind of like push off a woman that was trying, that was drowning her by down. trying to like, yeah. So it's just this little moment, this just little release. And then we do it again. Then we see like, yeah, more sad stuff, you know? dynamics it's a small dynamic it's like like mezzo piano to piano or whatever you know like it's it's a, it's a little one just a little lift and then we give you more sad stuff yeah because otherwise that there would be a tonal issue like if he told a joke and then she told the joke back and then mm -hmm. that would be a tonal discontinuity that you would feel like that was wrong but a little lift like you said a little lift and again based in, in what feels like a truthful line of dialogue like yeah. the, like if, if you're if you just go back to the and, and look at that scene it's two cowboys listening to this girl 
play a piano and watching her break down and sob. So take away the river part because none of those three characters know that that's happening. They're watching her like, oh, what the hell's wrong with you? Like, 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 can't you play something happy? We found a piano and you know, like this, this might be the last time we see a piano. Could we do like, a, you know, something a little lighter? So it, it was true to the experience of those three characters. And then it becomes funny because you know of, of what's happening in both of those separate pieces. You, you as the audience know what's happening in the river and you know what's happening to the piano. And you're like, you're watching like a Good Lord, you, you, the audience is maybe thinking this themselves. Like, can I watch something happy for a second? The Cowboys say, don't you know any happy ones? They're like, yeah, what the hell? You know, the audience is participating. Like, that's yeah. what I want. So yeah, she just um, chuckles. It's a very, or, you know, she smiles. It's a very honest reaction. It, it, is a, it is a beautiful reaction. And, and it's just, she's just an uncommonly talented person. It was such a thrill to, to cut that show with her as the anchor for it. All of them. That was a very special experience. It was a very difficult show to put together. It was aggressive. We were out in trailers in the middle of North Texas and it was cold and everyone was like in that environment, embedded, you might say. But it was a very rewarding project. To this point in my career, the most rewarding thing that I've been involved in and I'm very, very proud of it. And a lot of things just came together in a way that you hope is going to happen, but you don't know until you do it. I have not yet seen 1923 at it mm -hmm. opens as we're having this conversation tonight, I believe, premieres. Oh, it actually, we actually, episode one came out last Sunday. Okay. So eight, episode one is out there in the world. Episode two, it'll be every Sunday after that for eight weeks. So episode two is actually weirdly Christmas Day. And then episode three is New Year's Day. So it's it's weird. But, you know, with streaming now, those holidays are big days at the movies. You know, people are like with their family, like, oh, we need something to watch together. Don't watch this with your kids, though. For little kids, this is not for them. Episode one did phenomenally well. The numbers were actually huge for 1923. I'm hoping that people that didn't watch it were like, oh, yeah, if that, I heard about that show. And maybe on Christmas Day, they'll be like, all right, now we've got two episodes to watch and, and people get into it that way. But, yeah, it got out there and it, and it, and it did really, really well. And it's a good show. It's different. It's a show that is of the era that it's in. It's kind of like this old Hollywood feel that I really love. Although it's another Dutton family story, it's got its own very unique flavor to me. And what editorially, what was guiding you? How is this show different editorially and why from 1883 or Yellowstone? I think it's, it's really the time period. And when you think about movies that you've seen of that era, or you think about that time in, in Hollywood, there's like a, a scope and a sweep to it, a romanticism of it. And so that stuff has been designed into the visual storytelling of the show. And I think then editorially, it's just about honoring that and the music that we're using. It's very, it's big sweeping stuff. We're in Africa in, in 1923. That has its own beautiful landscape and characteristics and animals. And in the 1920s, what was happening there? They were building railroads. There was this height of British colonialism and people trying turning that into like a tourist destination where they wanted to just hover above it all. And so you have these different class things at work. So it's just a very rich, very rich tapestry. The costumes, the production design, and all of it. You're trying to show people a world that they may have seen, they haven't seen it in a while, and I don't think they've seen it like this. There's a lot of scope to it, so you want to honor the scope. One of the favorite things I say to my people, like from giving them notes or something, is like the money's in the wides. You want to show those wide shots because that's where you can tell what we've done. So when you have the kind of scope, and this is true of Yellowstone 1883 and certainly true in 1923, that scope becomes its own character. In Yellowstone, the mountains, the mountains, the wides, the aerials, the, like all these things, that's, that's what they're fighting for. You don't have to be thinking about it consciously, but it's like, this is what's at stake. This land, this is what everybody wants. And so just we remind the audience or just check in with it, like, oh my God, that's beautiful. And if that was mine, I would defend it as well. 
again, subconsciously, maybe people thinking that, maybe not, I don't know, but it has its very important place in the structure of those shows. In 1883, it's certainly that the environments became this character that is swallowing up our travelers and killing them and it, ruthlessly, like just through the elements or through the various things that happen when you are on a wagon train trying to move across the country in the 1880s. The land wins, you know, a lot of those battles. So making sure that we checked in on the visuals and then we see like over the latter episodes, the snow starts coming in. You're like, man, if I was in the middle of nowhere and I saw those snow covered mountains, I would just be like, no, there's no way I would like, no way I could make it through that. You know, it becomes very scary and it becomes this almost like a, a villain. The elements that are closing in all around you and swallowing you up and you get high and wide and you see how tiny these people are and they're placed in this this environment like oh my god how are they going to survive they don't have anything there's no gas station there's no there's no whatever there's no just road them. no road no nothing i think it's common to to taylor's work to these stories to this yellowstone world that it's it's about that it's about characters learning to interact with the land and learning to live on it and with it and then i mean it's very much about the indigenous people who were already here and who had figured all those things out and then have these in, these intruders coming in we service that all the time. It was just always in the back of my mind. Is there a moment where we can just kind of check in and see, you know, the landscape for a moment? Does it fit? And in doing that, it's it's just this little constant reminder and serves a different purpose in the three shows. It has a different meaning, I think, in the three shows, but but collectively it it is it is what these shows are about. It's about our character's relationship with the land and learning to live with it and, and trying to survive. Chad, thank you so much for spending some time with me. And oh, my pleasure. The- Art of the Cut listeners, man, a huge amount of great stuff I think came out of this interview and hopefully we'll have- Oh, thank you. I hope so. I have no idea. Like, (laughs) no idea. I just start talking and I hope it, I hope any of it makes sense. It all made sense and it was all very helpful and very useful information, I think. Great. Great. I'm glad to hear that. Well, it's a pleasure, Steve. Like I said, I've, I've been listening to your podcast for a long time and I'm very honored to be a part of it. So thank you. That's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com slash artofthecup, all one word, or borisfx.com slash AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a Topic-Driven Curated Look at the Craft of Editing. Thanks to Chad Galster, ACE. Thanks to Sam Rosenberg, who edited today's podcast. And thanks to our partner, Boris Effects, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com cut. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening, and please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that to get more great Art of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app.